God is with us. That is a phrase we use often at this time of year. We sing about it. We include it on Christmas cards. It's in our carols. God is with us. That is a core truth to what we believe and what we are celebrating, that God came in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and that he came to be with his people. Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23 says, all of this, speaking of the coming of Jesus, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We have read that truth countless times. We know it to be the case, and yet it still is a marvel to think about what actually happened, that God, the creator through whom all things came into being, takes on flesh and is born as a child, that that child born to Mary and Joseph is God with man, the God who made the universe, who's worshipped for generations, would somehow appear, not not in, with an angelic choir and trumpets and fanfare, but would be born as a baby in a remote town, grows up as a child in relative obscurity, and then when he appears as an adult and begins public ministry, is almost immediately denounced by the religious leaders of his day. He is universally dismissed by those who were the authorities, at least at that point in Judaism. That baby is the Messiah, the Savior, God in flesh. And yet John 1 says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. He seemed like one of them. He seemed ordinary, didn't seem like anything unusual, like it was possibly God in flesh. God became a man and lived among men, and for that, it is God giving to man the ultimate test. Will you believe that this one that I have sent has come to be your Savior? Will you put your trust in this one who was born in Bethlehem, who died for your sins, who is Emmanuel, God in flesh? Or does that seem too far-fetched, too hard to believe, too unlikely? Does it seem strange that one man could offer a sacrifice for sinners, that one man could pay the price for our sins? That is what the, the, is at the heart of the gospel. It is what the Bible describes in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And yet religions, apart from biblical Christianity, almost universally include some component of works and effort because there's some belief that if I'm going to be approved of by God, I've got to earn it in some way. I've got to do something in order to get it. It can't be as simple as believing. It can't be as simple as trusting that this child whose birth we celebrate grew and gave his life as a ransom for sinners. And so I've got to do right, obey, give, sacrifice, something to earn approval before God. And yet, what God does throughout Scripture is he puts objects of faith in front of men and says, believe, trust me. That is what it is in Jesus Christ. Believe that this is the Savior. But it's not unusual. We see it often, and we're going to see it in the, the passage that we're looking at. We're in Isaiah. We've, we've moved back to Isaiah 7, 8, 9 during this Advent season because that is the passage that Matthew points back to. Read to you from Matthew 1 when he speaks of the virgin being with child and, and that she will give birth to a son and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And all of that in fulfillment of this here in Isaiah chapter 7. And this is another place where God puts before his people an object of faith and says, will you believe me? Will you trust my word on this? 
Isaiah 7.14, we read chapter 7 last week, but just to review, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We understand from Matthew telling us in Matthew 1, 700 years later then, after Isaiah, that the fulfillment of that ultimately is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is God with us. But in Isaiah chapter 7, 700 years before Christ, that sign has a very specific purpose. It is a sign that God gives to a king at that point in history and says, there will be a son who is born, and that son will be to you a sign. Now, the king's name was Ahaz. The nation is the nation of Judah. And the person who is sent to Ahaz to speak this truth is, is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, whose book we are reading from. He is sent to Ahaz at a time of national crisis. There are countries that are threatening Judah, the country that Ahaz is king of. If you see on the chart here, and you probably may not be able to read, those of you good eyesight can read the names in the circles, but Syria is the nation on the top, Israel in the middle, Judah is on the bottom. Syria and Israel are aligning together. They are striving together to take over Judah because they want to align themselves as one larger force to take on an even bigger nation that you don't see on the map, which is the Assyrian Empire. The idea is that if the two of us take Judah in, we build our army with three nations, we've got a better chance of resisting the attack from the Assyrian Empire. This is all the, the background that's going on at this point in time. I'm not going to recount all of the history that we looked at last week, but I think there's there's four nations, four kings to identify that help set this story in order. The one is Judah, the nation that you see in the south. Judah's king is Ahaz. Ahaz is sort of the, the pivot point in this story. He's the one that Isaiah continues to speak to. He is the one who is presented with the challenge of two attacking nations. He is the king who is on the throne that is in the line of David. Of all of these kings and all of these nations, Judah is the one that is the object of God's favor, if you will, and blessing, because this is the nation through which the line of David continues to descend through the, through the kings of this nation. Ahaz himself is not a godly king. He is a rebellious, disobedient king, but Judah is one of the nations. Israel is ethnically related to Judah in that they are all Jewish people. They are separated, though, the two nations, by virtue of Israel essentially seceding and parting ways with Judah 200 years earlier. We looked at that a little bit last week. Israel has pursued idols, has gone away from God, has done nothing but evil over the course of those two centuries. Syria, just to the northeast of Israel, is also another smaller country, place that has no interest in the God of the Jewish people. And then the fourth nation that we'll talk about, and the, sort of the, the underlying nation behind all of this, is the Assyrian Empire. At that point, the Assyrian Empire is the, the great bully, if you will, in the room. This is the nation of nations. If you see that map, the purple is how the Assyrian nation began Green is what they became over the course of the next couple of centuries. They simply, by virtue of strength and army, just continued to conquer lands around them until they became this great. The little corner there at the bottom left, as you're looking at that light brown, is the area of Judah and how Assyria begins to venture into Judah. And we'll get to that in the passage that we're in this morning. But we have so Assyria and Syria. I'm going to separate those two, the large empire and the smaller nation, and then Judah and Israel. 
At 740 BC, Isaiah goes to King Ahaz of Judah. And Judah now is facing this terrifying situation. The people know that they are about to come under attack from two neighboring countries. And so Isaiah goes to Ahaz, and his message that we saw last week in chapter 7 is simple. Don't fear. Trust in the Lord. Ahaz, you are the nation that God has promised to work through your throne. God has promised to preserve. You simply need to believe in God. You need to trust that God is with you. Don't fear. What does Ahaz do? He is given this test, really. It's, do you believe God or not? What do you want to do with that? You've got an impending attack coming, and you've got the man of God saying, trust in God. What do you do? Well, we know what Ahaz did. He refused to trust God. He turned instead to his own solution. If you would keep your finger here and turn to 2 Kings, we're going to go back a little bit in Old Testament history, 2 Kings 16. I think it's helpful just to read this passage that describes historically what it is that Ahaz chose to do at that moment after being given this choice, trust God or try it on your own. And we get to see here in 2 Kings 16 what Ahaz did. He threw himself at the mercy of the Assyrian Empire. Ahaz thought about this diplomatically and thought, well, okay, if these two nations are going to come after me, I'll go and try my hand with the bigger one and see if I can't get an ally there. And so verse 7 says, uh, 2 Kings 16, 7, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord, was in the temple, and in the treasuries of the king's house, and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, and he took it, killing its uh, carrying its people captive to Kerr and killing Rezin, who was the king of Syria. So here's, here's Ahaz's solution. I'm going to go and go to the big guys on the block, and I'm going to ask them for protection. Essentially, I will buy protection from the Assyrian Empire. And so he goes into the treasury of the temple and of his own family, of his own royal line, and he takes from that treasury and he sends this amount to the Assyrian king and says, help me, you bail us out in all this. Remember, this is the king who was told... God will be your savior. Trust him, Ahaz. And Ahaz goes, no, no, no. I've got a better idea. I'll go to the Assyrian Empire and I will throw myself at them. At the moment, it looks like it's good because it works. What does Assyria do? They march down into Syria to the capital city of Damascus. They take over the country. They kill the king. And as far as Ahaz is concerned, his diplomacy worked. Looked like a plan. Verse 10 gets worse. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest, this is sending back to Jerusalem, to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern, exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and describes all of the offerings that he gave in verse 13 on the offering. Verse 14, the bronze altar that was 
The one that was before the Lord in the temple, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, and he gives the description of all of the offerings that you are to do. Verse 16 says, Uriah did all this as King Ahaz commanded. So picture what's happened here. The large Assyrian empire has moved into Syria at, at Ahaz's request and has wiped out the Syrians, has taken their king. And so Ahaz from Judah says, I want to go up there to Damascus, formerly the capital of, of Syria. Now it's a city taken over. I want to go up there and congratulate the king of the Assyrian empire. He's done what I asked him to do. He bailed us out. He wiped out the enemy. And so he travels up to Damascus to congratulate the king of Assyria. And while he's there... He sees the Assyrians establishing now their kind of worship to the gods that they worship. And so there is an altar there now that the king of the Assyrian empire believes is worthy of worship to whatever god the Assyrians are worshiping. And Ahaz says, oh, I can do this even better. I'm going to have a copy of this altar made, get rid of the, the, the altar that has been made for the temple of God down in Jerusalem, move that one aside... And I will have them establish an altar that will look just like what the Assyrians worship on, who do not worship the God of heaven and earth. And he then leads his people into utter idolatry. Here is the king saying, I will bow my knee so far to the Assyrian empire, so much to impress them that I will have an altar just like theirs built in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and, and as far as God is concerned, nothing. It was the Assyrians who saved us. That in his mind, that's, that's the point right now, is this is worship of the Assyrian Empire that he has seen as the Savior. God had said to Ahaz, I will be your Savior. I will give you peace. Don't be foolish about this. Don't disobey. And Ahaz does to the fullest extent possible. And from all appearances, Ahaz looked right. From a completely earthly level, if you're one of the people of Judah and you're not all that concerned about worship at that point, you're looking at what your king did and you're going, I guess it worked. That was good diplomacy. He got us spared. We're not under attack anymore. The Syrians are gone. In reality, Ahaz and his people settled for the wrong kind of peace and pursued it in completely the wrong way. In the midst of a national crisis, Ahaz and his supporters believe that the thing they need more than anything else is defeat of an enemy, and they need the best, most efficient means to wipe out the enemy. Might as well go to another army instead of going to God, because that looked the most obvious. We get that, right? There are times when we are convinced that we just, we just need some fix, some solution, something, something to happen the way we want it to go, and everything will be right regardless of how we get there, whatever the, the means are to the end. If, if only my child would obey, if only my spouse would listen, if only my boss would acknowledge my work, if only I had enough money to pay off this debt, if only, if only I just had this, it would be great. Everything would be fine. The attitude of the, the people of Judah was, if only Syria was gone, boy, we, we'd be great. Oh, they're gone? We're good. And that's the way we get sometimes. If we can just fix this. Go back to Isaiah, because there's, there's a problem with this way of thinking. When God has said, trust me, and the attitude instead is, no, no, I see something better. I see something that looks bigger and more reliable, something that I can put my hands on and talk to and make a deal with. 
There's a price to be paid for that. Ahaz shows us the futility of this. I want to pick up the first four verses of chapter 8 are, are Isaiah now returning to Ahaz with another son, and he is beginning to explain what, what it is that Ahaz has caused here in terms of Assyria and, and what they will ultimately do. And so if you look at verse 5 of Isaiah 8, Isaiah says, The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin, the now gone king of Syria, and the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. See what's happening at this point and what Isaiah is saying to Ahaz now? This, this, this section, I think, is the key to this whole part of the prophecy. It is Isaiah, the man of God, interpreting for the king, this is what you've done and what you think has been the result, and here's the reality, what actually is going to happen. This is, this is what you've actually brought on your people. When he says that this people rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, what he's saying is that Ahaz and Ahaz's supporters were happy because the, the king of Syria was gone and the threat of Israel apparently went with it. Assyria, Israel would, would also go into captivity to Assyria a short time after this, so they were already under Assyria's thumb. And so God is acknowledging at this point that the people of Judah are celebrating. They are rejoicing. What Ahaz has done has taken care of the enemies, and it's all good. The problem, though, is that this Assyrian army won't stop there. They are cheering the fact that the powerful empire has taken out these other two nations, and Isaiah is saying, but that's not the end of it. This won't stop there, Ahaz, and look what you've caused at this point. You've made a serious miscalculation. Assyria is like a river. And like a river that begins to rise and finally goes over its banks, he says, it will eventually sweep over Judah and it will be up to your neck. The Assyrian empire that you went and pleaded to and gave money to and worshipped is going to next take you. And they are going to come and they are going to surround you and pounce on you just like they did with the others. We know from history Assyria did attack Judah. It's in the Bible in 2 Kings 18, and there are ancient historical records that to this day are in the British Museum that show the reliefs. And in fact, this one was one that was found as dated back to King Sennacherib of Assyria. And it is him on his throne with his military bringing back Jews that had been captured in the city of Lachish, the, the, the second largest city in Judah at that point, the one that they had made their first incursion into and had dragged back captives. So history tells us that what Isaiah promised is exactly what unfolded in the next few decades. That, that Ahaz and his great deal-making had left him now with an empire that was going to take them and about choke them, not quite wipe them out. It's interesting that he uses the language, even to the neck this flood would come, because Assyria was ultimately not the nation that would wipe out Judah. It would be Babylon, a century later, that would carry out the punishment. But the Assyrian army would have its way in Judah. The only thing that would stop it would be the king who follows Ahaz. His son Hezekiah was a godly king, and God withstood at that point the Assyrian army. They ended up falling in Babylon, becomes the ruling empire of that day. But God's point in this passage is, you wanted peace. 
You wanted the defeat of enemies. You thought that was all that mattered, and all you were doing was trying to find who gave you the best shot at rescuing you and giving you peace. And I offered you peace. And you chose the Assyrians instead. And look what you got. And he illustrates that, very interestingly, with these pictures of water when he describes this flowing, gentle flowing waters of Shiloh and then this massive river that he pictures Assyria as. Think back when we looked at chapter 7 last week. Where was Ahaz when Isaiah first came to him to confront him? He's out inspecting the water supply to the city of Jerusalem. Remember, he was out at the, the, the pool right outside at the conduit that comes in, and, and he is looking to try to figure out, okay, if, if we get attacked, how do we keep water in the city? How do we protect the city? It, I, I realize the map has got a lot of small print, but if you look at where the arrow is, it's on the southeast corner, and there is a spring there just outside of Jerusalem. And it is that spring that feeds a conduit that runs water into the city. Hezekiah comes along several decades later and says, I got a better idea, and he has a tunnel built. And so Hezekiah's tunnel runs under the wall, and that's what allows water to go in and pool up down there, and so it gives a greater source of protection. But at this point, the water source that, that Ahaz was looking at is just sort of this spring that's in this nice conduit, and it's flowing, it's sufficient, gently flowing into the city. And he's trying to, to figure out how to protect it. God now says, you know what Ahaz, here, let me give a picture to you. You, you looked at that, that, that flow of water from that spring outside, and you thought, well, that's just not much. I don't know what we're going to do and how that's going to work. He says, you know what? That picture of that, that gently flowing, quietly flowing little brook there, that's me. That's the peace I came to offer you, and you rejected that. And you said, no, we need something bigger. We need bigger and better, and, and Assyria offers a river. I don't want some gently flowing stream that could be easily cut off by an enemy. I want something that I can really trust in, something big, something that'll batter others. And so God sets this choice in front of Ahaz. Trust and rest in the one who promises that there will be an endless flow of peace. It's not going to come rushing through loud like a river. It'll just be an endless, satisfying stream of peace and satisfaction or Turn yourself over to some pagan nation that flaunts itself as being the great power of the day and throw yourself at their mercy and see what you get. And that's what he's judging him here, basically, in verses 5 and 6 and saying, these people said, we'll take the river. This wasn't hard for a king who didn't care for God anyway. Do I take the, the big or the little? I take the big. I take the one that looks like nothing can stop it. That other one looks like it can be cut off. I can't see God. I can't touch God. I, I, I don't know what he's really going to do. All he's doing is telling me to trust him. And I don't know what that means. I don't know how that'll look. But this, I can see it. And it's an army that'll protect me. Now God is saying to Judah through Isaiah, that gentle spring that you were not impressed by, that, that's me. And you have rejected me, and so know that that river will come, and it will overflow its banks, and it will flood you up to the neck. Ray Ortland writes, poor little Judah will have to stand on tiptoe just to keep her head above water. The people will survive barely. That's the picture of what came right near 701 B.C. when, when uh, the Assyrian Empire came into Ju Judah and began to attack. The last phrase in this 
seems sort of out of place. He's described the Assyrian Empire coming in, sweeping over, and then he gives the picture of being like a bird of prey, wings filling the whole land, and then he says, Oh, Emmanuel. There's that Emmanuel phrase again. He used it back in chapter 7 when he said about the son who would be born. He's reminding Ahaz at this point. Remember how I said I would give you a sign even though you refused it? And before that, that child is old enough that, that he will see God's hand will be at work. And, and what he's saying here is when that judgment comes, that son, that child, whoever that child was in that day who was identified as Emmanuel, he will see it too. And, and in his presence, just as God promised, God will be bringing judgment on Judah because of Ahaz. God will be pouring down his judgment through the Assyrians. And yet... Yet, what was that son a sign of? That God would keep his people. And so even in that moment when the Assyrians are coming in, that child is the sign that is the reminder that the Assyrians will not completely wipe out the people of Judah. God will still protect and preserve a remnant. And so even here, by saying Emmanuel, he is reminding Ahaz that despite your foolish rebellion... That son who will be a sign of your judgment will also be a sign of God's rescue of his people. He will still preserve a remnant. Because no matter what nations try to do, when God determines to protect them, he will do that. And that's what he says in verses 9 and 10 when he says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? God is with us. And he comes back one more time to that reminder. God is, is speaking at this point through Isaiah to nations like the Assyrian Empire when they turned on Judah. And despite their might and, and the success they've had over nation after nation before that spread their empire out, God says, my purposes will stand. And if I have determined to protect Judah and that you will only come up to the neck and then you will be stopped, and that's as far as the Assyrian Empire is going to be because God is with his people. For the third time, Emmanuel, God is with us. It doesn't matter whether the enemy is Assyria or Babylon or any other nation. God is with his people. And enemies can rise with great determination and with great alliances and with all their armor and their horses, and they can march in. And God has said, this will go as I have determined. I have determined to save my people and you will not succeed. If God is determined to protect his people and keep them in peace, all of the enemy's efforts will be thwarted because, verse 10, God is with us. I just want to look at the next few verses, but the question then is, okay, so what do we do? If Ahaz is the, the picture of what we don't do, if God has said, I am with you, trust me, what do we do? Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me, this is Isaiah again, with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me, not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken." Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord 
who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him, is Isaiah's closing statement there. The promise that God is with us finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that God came in flesh, gave himself as a ransom for sinners, rose again from the dead, and is with us. So what? What does that mean for us? How ought we to live in light of that? What, what should that do for us? And I think Isaiah gives us a simple little walkthrough here on what it means that God is with us. Ahaz is the lesson in what not to do. Ahaz is when God gives the object of faith, and Ahaz says, nope, not going to believe it. The simple reality of believing God is with us takes faith, doesn't it? We can say God is with us, but that still ultimately takes believing that God is with us. Because we today, just like Ahaz, can't see God, we can't touch God. We have to believe in his word, and we have to believe in his promises. Ahaz refused to do that. But what he gives here is just walks through some very simple things for Isaiah. Don't do this, instead do this. Bible often puts it in terminology of put off and put on, Ephesians chapter 4. Put off these ways of doing things, put on these instead. I'm going to give you three of them, and it won't take long. These will just be the, the last three things we'll just talk through real quick. Don't put your hope in the things the world counts on, but persist in trusting God's plan and protection and promises. Don't put your hope in the things that the world hopes on, that they count on. Isaiah makes that statement here. God speaking to Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Ask the typical person on the street, what is power? What, what does power look like in the world? Who has power? And, and typically they'll say, well, power is, is possessed by by men, and, and, and some use it for good and some use it for evil. There are powerful people who have great possessions and wealth, and, and they sort of work against one another or with one another. They are sort of brokers of power. Some are working for good, some are working for evil, but, but the world typically sees power played out in man, in, in people. And so we, what we tend to do then is try to align ourselves with the good guys instead of the bad guys and, and, and put our hope in the good guys against the bad guys as, as we see power played out. There's certainly some truth in all of that, that, that that is what power looks like as it's played out, whether it was 700 B.C. and you saw nations and kings, or whether it's 2018 and you see nations and presidents and leaders and different rulers. All of these things are real, but the call is to not put your hope in them. That's what he's saying here when he, he says that, that these people are, are crying conspiracy. They're seeing nations aligned, and they're, they're thinking that everything hinges on how these nations team up with one another, who conspires together, who gets power at any given moment. He's saying, don't put your hope in that. That's futile. There is a, a, a certain necessity that we know about politics in our country. Our government works based on a system of Politics, there are parties that compete for your allegiance and your support and your votes. And, and, and there's a massive effort that goes into politics in our country. The 2016 presidential election, it's estimated there's about $6 billion in spending. This year, about $4 billion in spending in House and Senate races. That's a lot of what keeps our economy cranking right around here in D.C. is all of that spending. But the reality is that at the core of that, for a lot of people, there is that, that sort of estimation that this is where my hope lies, that, that if, it's, if it's this team that's in charge, it's good, and if it's this team that's in charge, it's devastation. 
we, we live in that same sort of realm of the, the conspiracy mindset that says, you know what, we, we've got we've to have the right side. We've got to be aligned with the right folks. Politics cannot direct our future apart from the hand of a sovereign God. He is the one that we must put our hope in. And so when he says here, tell these people, don't, don't get caught up in this stuff. Hope in God. Don't put your hope in the things of this world. Because when you put your hope in the things of this world, they often don't go the way that you want them to go. And that leads to what is the next put off and put on, which is that temptation to fear. When, when my team is not in control, then becomes the fear that this other team is going to destroy me in some way. They're going to ruin me in some way. And he, he's urging here, put off Fear. Do not fear the things the world fears, but fear the one true God who deserves our reverence. People of Judah think that the most terrifying thing before them at that moment is Israel and Syria. Got to do something with, with these approaching nations. And, and they are in a panic as a result of that. We can do the same thing. You watch enough cable news, and no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you will hear talk of conspiracies that that other side, if they are in power, will take away your rights and make your life miserable. doesn't matter which side you are on this. The other side is evil, and they wish to destroy you in some way or at least make life not the same for you. And the reaction so often in so much of our politics plays to is fear. Is, is, is this just... It just all goes badly if we go this way. And it, 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 the commercials, the whole language just plays to our fears. And Isaiah is told by God, don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. We become convinced that whether it's a military force or political power, those are the things we should fear. When God says, no, fear me. Fear me. Don't, 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 I am sovereign over these things. Don't panic over the things of the world. Jesus Christ had said in Luke 12, 22, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. Life's more than food, the body more than clothing. Instead, seek his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't panic over this stuff. Trust me, we should be wise about life, but not anxious, not fearful. Jesus also in Luke 12, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do, but I warn you to fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Man can do and does awful things, but he cannot undo the plans and promises of God. If, if we are told that God is with us, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, and Jesus Christ has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, and nothing can separate you from my love, then we believe that. That is what is true, and man can't undo that. He can't thwart that. Man can't rob or secure your eternal destiny. Because God is with us, we should not fear as the world fears. The last one that he addresses here is just where do you get your wisdom? The third put off. Don't seek wisdom as the world does, but instead rely on God's word as the sufficient source. Isaiah 8.19, if you look down there for a minute, says, And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? 
Here's God is citing to Isaiah what was known in that point of time, and that is you, you went to these sort of mediums. You, went, you, you consulted with the dead, or at least what you thought were the dead. You, you went to these sort of um, in-betweens who supposedly talked to spirit beings. And here's God through Isaiah saying, what utter foolishness that is. Why would you dismiss my wisdom and turn instead to those who are beyond the grave, or so you think, and, and trust in, in spirit beings, or whatever it is that you're listening to? For the world, God's truth is just an option. The Bible is not necessarily a particularly good one. It's just a piece of religious literature. God's warning here is, if you reject my truth, if you reject what I have said about myself and about you, you will ultimately stumble on it. That's the picture that he gives here when he says that in verse 14, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. Many shall stumble on it and fall and be broken. God's truth stands as his revelation. And, and again, we either believe him and we trust him or we stumble over him and we fall all the way to the very end of the chapter. And the conclusion of this chapter is verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It is a fearsome picture of, of where man goes when he follows the path that Ahaz chose, which is, I'm not trusting God. I can do this myself. I can find peace in the midst of a terrible time with whatever I do. I, I, I can solve this myself rather than trusting in God. Next week, Stuart takes us into chapter 9. We come from the darkness into the light. And we see the glorious light of this one who is coming, who will be the prince of peace and the wonderful counselor. But the ending in chapter 8 is to say, if you continue down this path, if you continue to reject the God who says, trust me, believe in me, know that I have sent my son for you, then it is a dark path that leads to anguish. For those who dismiss God's truth, it becomes a stumbling block. And so we are called to not do that, to not fear what the world fears, to not put our hope in what the world puts its hope in, to not seek wisdom in what the world seeks wisdom in, but to put our hope in God and in the promises and protection of his word, to seek wisdom from his truth. And it is in that that we find him to be a sanctuary of peace. For them, he will become a sanctuary. For them, he will become a place of refuge where he keeps his people and protects his people as he promises. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for God with us, that Jesus Christ became God in flesh to give us this promise of your lasting presence with us and of peace. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would today be the day that you would open their eyes to embrace the truth, to believe that Jesus Christ came in our place to be the perfect substitute and sacrifice for sinners as each of us is. We deserve judgment. We deserve to stand like Ahaz as rebels against your will and yet through your son, Jesus Christ, you have offered forgiveness and mercy. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us this week, deepening our trust in you, that we would be a people who would not put our hope in the things of this world, that we would not fear them, but that we would rather 
revere and honor and trust in you and put our hope for eternity in you. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that your promises, we see it throughout Scripture, one after another, are kept, that you are true to your word and a God that can be relied on and trusted in. We trust in you now and we pray that you would accomplish your work through us, this body of believers this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.